This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Things change quickly, as we have all learned the last few months of the coronavirus. That could be our eating habits, the way we communicate with friends and family, or how we celebrate and grieve. One thing that hasn't changed, though, the political dynamics for the United States 2020 presidential, Senate, and House contests. We're now less than six months away from Election Day, and it's time for one of our regular check-ins with Nathan Gonzalez, CQ Roll Call's elections analyst. Nathan Gonzalez, CQ Roll Call's elections analyst, has a piece about the political dynamics as we're facing the 2020 election. Uh, It's in Roll Call print today. It's online on rollcall.com. And Nathan is here, here, air quotes, Uh, (laughs) here here on political theater uh, to talk uh, talk about his piece and talk about some of these dynamics. Nathan, good to see you. And I can see you. It's nice. Yeah, but everyone else can't, which might help uh, our, our clicks on this one. <laughs> so, um, so you, the, what you wrote uh, is a, about the 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 election in six months. Is that considering the fact that we're in the middle of you know one of the biggest, most traumatic moments in our recent history? You know, with a global pandemic, mounting death tolls, a cratering economy, the political dynamics still have not changed much over the last year, year and a half. People, uh, like the, the the numbers for the president are virtually unchanged, you know, from like the last election we had in 2018. And, and, and if anything, things are shifting a little bit more towards the Democrats at the federal level, uh, the, the presidential and the Senate and the House level. But it, we're, isn't this like amazing that there isn't that much that has changed considering what's going on in the world right now? I think there was a clear trend before the coronavirus, and when it came to political handicapping, it's that you you spend all this time analyzing data and you give your best projection. You say, "Well, but anything could happen," you know, just to kind of cover yourself or to uh, you know, you you use it as a crutch when you look at where we are today, and uh, it it doesn't even <laughs> we have we say, "Well, what could happen between now and November that would change the trajectory of this election?" Because we have gone through or are going through a global pandemic. We have we went through a historical impeachment process and nothing really changed in terms of electorally. Our lives have changed. Uh, our day-to-day lives have changed. But politically, voter, not a lot of voters' minds have changed about who they're going to support for president. And I think that that has a fundamental impact on uh, even what the down-ballot races are going to look like. So I think we shouldn't be afraid to look at the data and say, this is what's most likely to happen because uh, on the current trajectory, uh, there's nothing that's been able to push us off the current trajectory up to this point. And 
you know, way, way back in January and February, uh, you know, the, the, the dynamic that had, had begun to present itself was that impeachment was going to be this turning point, that, that the Republicans thought that they could use it actually to their advantage uh, because the, the president was acquitted by the Senate uh, and they could say that the de- Democrats wasted all this time with, the, with impeachment. And one of the things you say in your piece is that seems like a century ago, <laughs> like, like nobody is talking about impeachment. It just shows how we tend to get wrapped up in the moment, right? The, the news of the day or the current, uh, you know, whatever the current conversation is, we think that that's going to hold. And uh, it's just a, it's a dramatic example. Coronavirus is a dramatic example of how news changes, breaking news happens. And whatever the news of the late summer in the early fall is going to dictate the conversation for the general election. There's a good chance that we're going to be talking about coronavirus because this is, you know, it's not going away anytime soon, or we'll be at least dealing with the recovery of it. The conversation changes, but again, I don't know how many voters' minds are changing because we tend to view these events through our pre-existing prism. Like whether you support the president or not has already dictated how you think uh, the White House's response to coronavirus has been. So it's a backward way of looking at it, I think. And and some of the data that you are looking at and and making you know these sort of analyses is that um, Republicans are not raising as much money uh, as as Democrats. Uh, I mean the 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 president's reelection campaign and the Republican National Committee seems to be its own its own thing. But individual candidates, like when we talk about the Senate and how it's more of a toss up uh, than ever, and 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 looking you know better for Democrats all the time. Like those those Senate candidates that, that the Republicans have fielded, they're not raising the same kind of money. They don't have the same kind of cash on hand. Uh, and same thing with the House. Uh, the House dynamic hasn't changed a whole lot, except that Democrats are raising more money. And so, like, talk about that a little bit. And what and w- one change that we are seeing, which is that with fewer people with jobs, they may not be as, as psyched about giving away some of that you know, the money that's left to candidates. Right. I mean, if the president's standing is not going to improve dramatically, which I think, again, I've talked about how I'm skeptical that a lot of minds are going to be changed, that, that means Republicans are going to have to outrun the president in key Senate races or key House districts. And the way you do that is usually by having more money or uh, to reshape your race, to shape the conversation of your race. And this is where fundraising matters, that Democrats, even in the districts or states where Republican fundraising has been good, let's take Arizona, for example. With- let's, because that's the, that's the best state, Nathan, I'm not, I'm <laughs> my not home con- state. <laughs> I'm not contractually required to bring this up because you're hosting the podcast, but uh, since Republican Senator Martha McSally, her fundraising has actually been pretty good, but she just happens to be running against Mark Kelly, uh, who the, the Democratic uh, retired astronaut, uh, who uh, his fundraising has been out of this world. Astronomical. <laughs> out of this world. So she is she is going to have money to, to get her message out, but uh, it'll be tough for her to dictate the campaign. And then it'll depend on how the president does uh, in, in Arizona overall. So fundraising, I think this current environment rewards incumbents or candidates that already have pre-existing networks of donors that they can go to. It's just going to be tough to cultivate 
new donors uh, because uh, because people are going to be focused on on other things. Speaking of Arizona, the president uh, is making a trip to Arizona uh, with with McSally, with a couple of House members, Debbie Lesko, and Paul Gosar. Uh, they're visiting. A, uh, you know, it's not a big rally. They're not going to have a, a rally there, but it it seems to underscore. Uh, the challenges that somebody like McSally has that she needs the president uh, and his turnout, like to, to like his turnout sort of mechanisms and, and the enthusiasm that people do have for him. But that only gets her to a certain level. And then she needs people who are not hardcore Republican Trump supporters to support her. And they're going to be turned off by her proximity to him. And that's where it depends on whether the president wins Arizona again. He won it by a handful of points. I, I think it's much closer to a toss-up uh, race this time around against Vice President Joe Biden. And just in general, I feel like Republican candidates are trying to have it both ways with the president. They are depending on Republican-based voters to come out and vote, voters who didn't vote in 2018 when Republicans uh, did not do well. So they expect those voters to come out, but they also don't want the liability that the president is among Democratic voters and among some independents. So I don't know how you, how as a candidate you you walk those, <laughs> how you walk that line, but that's what I, what I hear Republicans not explicitly talking about when they lay out their strategy. It's very dependent on President Trump bringing out base Republicans uh, without even acknowledging that he might be a liability in other ways. And you know our uh, our friend and colleague Stu Rothenberg uh, wrote a column for Roll Call recently called Donald Trump's Maricopa Problem. Mar- Maricopa is the county that encompasses Phoenix and the and the greater Phoenix area: Mesa, Tempe, Scottsdale, uh, Gilbert. You know the, the 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 Phoenix megalopolis, if you will. Um, and and the and it, and he discusses this too. That this this thing that like the you know the, this is the one of the fastest growing you know counties. Uh, in in the country, it's one of the biggest, and the tr- and it's trending away from Trump and how the 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 people who have run the Republicans who have run well the last few years have outrun they've outperformed him you know so McCain in 2016 um, and you know it, it's a it's a it's not an enviable task to try to balance that. And it's more than Trump's Maricopa problem, it's McSally's Maricopa problem. In 2018, when she ran in the other Senate race, uh, she did not do well, but Republican Governor Doug Ducey did do well. Maricopa County voters showed that they can split their tickets. Mm-hmm. And now I just don't know what has changed that would cause those voters, uh, the, the college-educated voters, in Maricopa County that didn't vote for McSally in 2018 that are suddenly going to vote for her in 2020. I think that's an open question. Arizona is also a microcosm of what we're seeing where, where Republicans are trying, they have turned their focus to China. I think they've ditched the socialism argument uh, or messaging. Uh, now that Bernie Sanders is not going to be the Democratic nominee and they moved to China. And that's specifically in Arizona. They are are going after Mark Kelly for uh, money invested in a, a company that has Chinese ties, and basically uh, you know, trying to convince voters that a retired astronaut, retired Navy commander, is now you know a Chinese asset. And <laughs> it could work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm open minded about that, but i i start as I start as skeptical. 
Well, and and it reminds me, like the the Kelly situation, and again, not to not to turn this into the Arizona hour, but you know the the, the Kelly situation, uh, and he and he's married to uh, former rep Gabby Giffords, who was shot at a, an assassination attempt in outside of Tucson uh, back in 2011. You know, they went on to found this gun safety group. You know, um, and. I feel like one that's benefited him certainly because of the fundraising aspect. I mean, he's, he just has more connections uh, than, than just being a, a retired astronaut. I mean, he, you know, like that, that group's been out, um, you know, and very aggressive and in, in lobbying and, and so forth uh, and cultivating a, a donor base. And also it's, it's hard to paint him as some sort of anti-gun nut because he owns guns. I mean, he, He's utilized guns, you know, as a member of the military, and it was the same thing with Giffords. You know, Giffords, she, she, you know, is a gun owner herself, and would not advocate that guns be outlawed, but that they need to be regulated. And and it's it's like it's hard to get at them, you know. It's 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 hard to get at Kelly to portray him, as you said, as like uh, you you said that that he's some sort of Chinese asset, or that Joe Biden is a Chinese asset is is ludicrous, and most people. Don't think so. Yeah, and I have talked to some Republicans who wonder how hard can you push on Kelly? Not just because of how much is really there. I mean, I'd hope that our our astronauts go through a vetting, <laughs> significant <laughs> vetting process, and so there would only be so much since he was not doing that. You know that you can really mine for for opposition research. But I know from talking to uh, some Republicans. Uh, how much can you really go after him? He was not the one who was shot outside a grocery store, uh, but he is married to someone who was. And so is there a line that you can, you can't really go after him as hard as you might on a, on a more typical, on a more typical candidate. I mean, one of the other data points, and, and regretfully, we'll move on from Arizona now. Uh, <laughs> it's a big, um, it's a battleground. It is. It's. Uh, it is. It's got more. Uh, it, it's just just as much of a battleground as Wisconsin. Um, so, but um, another data point and reason that the dynamics haven't changed a ton is that there are just more Republicans running, you know, for the Senate, uh, or, or more Republican seats are open uh, this year. It's the opposite of the of the previous, you know, cycles dynamic. And so there are more pickup opportunities for Democrats. And they've really, they've fielded some pretty good candidates like Kelly, like Cal Cunningham in North Carolina, Sarah Gideon in Maine. Um, I mean, and so there, there aren't as many spots where uh, the Republicans can hold their own. I mean, they hope to knock off Doug, Doug Jones uh, in Alabama, but you know, Jones is not a bad candidate, and he's got a boatload of cash compared to the two Republicans who are in a special election looking to take him on. I mean, Jones is sitting on eight million dollars at the end of March, while Republicans won't choose a nominee until mid-July when the runoff happens. But you're right that Republicans are defending ten of the twelve most competitive Senate seats. Democrats need a net gain of three seats plus the White House to control or a net gain of four seats uh, to get a majority. And and where I think the most the most critical political development over the last few months was not the coronavirus. I would argue it was Biden's uh, basically ascension to the nomination because if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee, I think the, the Senate map would have narrowed considerably. Uh, it would be hard to believe that Montana would be on the board. I don't even know if Steve Bullock would have run if Bernie Sanders was the likely nominee. I don't think we would have been talking about Georgia's and even on the outskirts, Texas. Uh, Iowa might have been out of reach. It just the, the path would have gotten narrower because Democratic chances at the top of the ballot would have been, uh, they would have had less of a chance. And so that's why with Biden at the top, 
there's a broad field of Senate seats, broad opportunities for Democrats uh, to take over. And if if you like, I uh, I think President Trump should be regarded as at least a narrow underdog for reelection, and be, and that would decrease the number of Senate seats Democrats need to win to control. And so I think. Democratic control of the Senate is a very real possibility. Do you want to mention the House? The House doesn't get as much of attention because the House, you know, the, the House, and what? what is <laughs> they, uh, you know, the Dem- Democrats control the majority there. Um, you know, it wouldn't be, um, you know, unforeseen that they might lose a couple of seats, but they have the potential to even add a few. I mean, at, at this point, I mean, because they again they've recruited good candidates and they're raising a lot of money, and they get to run against Donald Trump. Right. I think the story of the House is that there are no gimmies for Republicans, even though there are Democratic incumbents that are running in difficult districts that President Trump did well in in 2016. There, I don't think there's a race right now where you could say it's over. Like mm-hmm. Republicans have that one in the bag. Now, on the flip side, there are two races in North Carolina and the Democrats are going to win because of redistricting. Uh, I think Democrats have a great chance in Texas 23 where Republican Congressman Will Hurd is not running for re-election. So I, I think we can't rule out Democrats even adding to the majority. Now, that doesn't mean these House races are irrelevant if the majority is not at stake because the margins matter. You know, every every plus or minus seat, that is that is the foundation for the 2022 elections. And I know we have 2020 figured out, but uh, so if we, if we, <laughs> yes, we've got it all figured out. <laughs> you know, 2022 could look very different depending on if it's a second midterm with President Trump. I would expect Republicans to have another rough year. But if it's a first midterm of a Democratic president, you know, midterms historically don't go well for the president's party. And so if Republicans can even inch closer in 2020, that will set them up better for 2022. And and of course that some of that dynamic with twenty twenty two will be determined too by the by the census and the redistricting realignment reapportionment. Uh, Texas is probably going to gain a bunch of seats. Uh, Florida is going to you know gain as, as it usually does. Maybe Arizona, um, and you know we don't. But we we don't know. I mean they've delayed the census, and we don't know what kind of effect that the death toll is going to have, uh, the coronavirus death toll. I mean, this could be the difference between, you know, whether somebody losing a seat and not, depending on where where it happens. Um, so it, it's, it is important to note for people that it's, it's not that nothing could change, you know, but the, the political dynamic is sort of set, although events are going to continue happening that, uh, that affect politics. And Luckily, you have us. You have Nathan Gonzalez <laughs> to, uh, to to keep track of this stuff, and and for me to uh, uh, ask pointed queries on podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah, turn, turnout is a is a key question, and that has become a, a cliche even before coronavirus. But you know, does not only you know not just the the, the death toll, but just the access uh, to voting does that disproportionately impact one party more than another in key districts, in key states that are close. You know, that's a, that's an open, it's an open question. Well, Nathan, thank you very much. Uh, I hope that uh, you and your family are doing well, staying uh, healthy and sane and, and, uh, and safe. <laughs> we're, we're healthy. Sane is a, sane is an hour to hour. It's a relative term in these times, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Thanks, Nathan. No problem. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Political Theater. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend. 
whether they prefer Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever they get their podcasts, we are available for free. Until next time. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is owned by Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.